back let's take a turn into an area we seldom well i'd say rarely delve into which would be psychiatry what are you crazy maybe starting out with an old issue of smithsonian magazine which often has some very whimsical pieces in it this piece was titled Ra Ra ruffians <laughs> it asked the question of if schools aim to bring out the best in our youth why do they name their teams after beasts bullies and buccaneers frankly, I think is a valid question. The piece by Bill Gilbert asked the question of why it is nicknames, logos, and mascots of many of our 3,700 plus institutions of higher learning have chosen to represent themselves with animals that emphasize traits like bloodthirstiness, viciousness, and so forth that cannot possibly improve the moral character of its young men and women. The most popular beasts are the supposedly dangerous felines, tigers, lions, wildcats, and such, who denote more than 200 American schools. They are closely followed by flocks of hunting or scavenging birds, packs of wolves, and reputedly ferocious breeds of domestic dogs. Among them, more than 40 bulldogs. Now, we all know of bears, like the cow bears, for example, and and members of the mustelid family. There's there's six wolverines and three badgers they can account for. But as far as I can see, no weasels. Although Mr. Millen does point out that might be an ideal mascot name for uh, Trump's alma mater, the Wharton School. We like the Wharton weasels. The piece notes there are also many teams named after hoofed beasts so powerful and unruly they're usually found only in wild or well-fenced places because of the personal or property damage they can cause. In this thundering herd, which is the actual name of the Marshall University mascot, there's bisons, bulls, rams, razorbacks, mustangs, and I like this one from Indiana University, the mastodons. And cold-blooded fauna are representative. And cold-blooded fauna are represented. There's multiple gators, cobras, rattlers, and from the Eastern Arizona College, the Gila Monster. I know, Mr. Millen, sadly, no Komodo dragons. Aww. 50 academic institutions are affiliated with swarms of hornets, wasps, or yellow jackets. And the article notes there's, there's about 500 or so colleges that have humanoid totems that are potentially more dangerous than the animals. Shockingly, there are more than 40 buccaneers, corsairs, and pirates. And apparently, California State University Vallejo even has the keel haulers. Closely allied to this are 30-odd Vikings. The piece notes that clearly, character building is not a top priority for educators who send out their athletes in such a manner. This reminds me of an episode several years ago when Stanford, that venerable institution in the Bay Area, decided to change its name from the Indians, which they went by for many decades, to something more politically correct. They polled the, um, the students at Stanford to see which name they would like to substitute. And to their everlasting credit, they proposed the Robber Barons. Asked to try again by the administration, they came up with the Trees. 
And as I understand it, when you see the Stanford marching band out on the field, they do have, accompanying them, a tree, which frankly makes more sense than what they did finally choose as a representative mascot, which was the cardinal. And no, I don't mean the bird, I mean the color. And no, they don't mean uh, the vestments of the Catholic hierarchy either. They mean the color. Better than Bodie McBoatface. No, I'm not sure that that is better than Bodie McBoatface. I agree. I kind of like Bodie McBoatface. (laughs) Glad you're coming around. Anyway, I enjoyed this article very much. It did have some suggestions near the end of how we might improve things. I mean, after all, everybody likes foodstuffs, don't they? We might see the Alaska Bakes, the Boston Cream Pies, the Kentucky Fried Chickens, the Louisiana Po' Boys, the Vermont Syrups, the Virginia Hams, the Wisconsin Cheddars, and naturally, the Worcester State Sauces. How about the Notre Dame Hunchbacks? I don't think it'll pass the PC barrier. And frankly, anyway, it's a bad idea. Now, we, we've taken our shots here on this program at, uh, at um, antidepressants. And we'll probably continue to do so in the future. I have an article from The Economist I will just quote from briefly. It noted that for decades, doctors believed SSRIs operated by boosting levels of serotonin, a chemical which carries signals between neurons in the brain. I would say, well, I don't know. Not all doctors believe that. They were certainly told that seemed to be the case by the drug companies marketing the drugs. The piece notes that this supposition was based on the hypothesis that a lack of serotonin causes depression. But a growing number of investigations suggest that that theory does not hold water. And it refers to a roundup of reviews of such works published in the Molecular, published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry. We talked about this last summer. I'm not going to go over it uh, again, except to say that um, the topic itself is, is somewhat depressing. And I say that not because I suffer from a chemical imbalance. Speaking of psychiatric imbalance, and how's that for a segue, I have a piece here that I I cannot resist quoting from. It came from LiveScience.com from a a few years back. The title of the article is, Was Freud Right About Anything? To quote from the piece by Stephanie Pappas, Sigmund Freud is one of the most famous doctors to delve into the human subconscious. But is anything he said rooted in science? After all, one of his most memorable ideas suggested that we're all repressing our true desires to have sex with our parents. But Freud didn't use science to arrive at this idea. He started out with a theory and then worked backwards, seeking out tidbits to reinforce his beliefs, then aggressively dismissed anything else that challenged those ideas. That's according to Frederick Cruz, one-time Freudian follower and professor of English at UC Berkeley. Said Cruz, Freud passed himself off as a scientist. He was very sensitive to objections and would simply laugh at an objection and claim that the person making it was psychologically ill. Back in 2017, Cruz wrote, Freud, the making of an illusion, to examine the legitimacy of Freudian principles. He said, quote, statistically, it's conceivable that a man can be as dishonest and slippery as Freud and still come up with something true. To which he added, I tried my best to examine his theories and to ask the question, what was the empirical evidence behind them? But when you ask these questions, then you eventually just lose hope. Notes the article, as damning an assessment as that is, it wasn't always like this for the founding father of psychoanalysis, who wrote that mental health problems could be cured by bringing unconscious thoughts back into the conscious realm. 
God, this reminds me of L. Ron Hubbard. But I do not digress. In his own time, says the piece, Freud enjoyed celebrity status as a leading intellectual of the 20th century. Chief among Freud's overflow of opinions was the Oedipus complex. The hypothesis that every young boy wants to have sex with his mother and so wants to murder his father, whom he sees as a rival. But of course, there's a catch. The boy also has the foresight to realize that his father is simultaneously his protector. Presented with this challenging scenario, the child is forced to repress his homicidal cravings. And to that I would add, if you think this is an exaggeration, you've never taken a course in psychology. Said Cruz, it's just about the craziest idea anyone ever had. When people asked about young girls, Freud hastily came up with another idea, the Electra Complex. It's just a cut-and-paste job. Suddenly, the little girl wants to have sex with her father. Said Cruz, it's completely ludicrous. The piece notes that at the core of both these theories is the notion of repressed emotions. That very concept empowered Freud to dismiss his detractors. He would always be totally convinced he knew what was wrong with his patients and then simply browbeat them until they agreed. When the patient disagreed, he didn't entertain the notion that he could be mistaken, said Cruz. He invoked his favorite concepts, chiefly repression. I would say that the patient's unconscious secretly harbored Freud's ideas but was too scared to confront them, said Cruz. That's the exact opposite of testing ideas. In Freud's defense, if you can say it that, uh, Harold Tukushian professor of psychology at Fordham University in New York, said, you could think of him as an idea factory. Freud never considered himself a data guy. Yes, why base your theories on actual data when the possibility exists for you to be so much more creative? Added the professor, he hoped other people would take on his ideas to prove or disprove them. To which Cruz said, but Freud's theories are on the whole almost impossible to submit to the rigor of statistical analysis the sort of thing that legitimate science has to endure. And that's because his ideas are hopelessly vague. How do you test for them? They're just phrases. Mr. Miller has always liked the quote that said the difference between Freud and fraud is just one letter. And by the way, that is an original quote from Edward McMillan, who, as I understand it, is still finishing up on his psychoanalysis. And speaking of psychiatric frauds, and I, and I guess we are, let's take a look at another piece from New Scientist, this case from March 17, 2018, article by Gina Perry, under the headline, 50 Shades of Obey. The subheadline is, Stanley Milgram dismayed the world when he revealed how little it took to turn everyday people into torturers. But the world was misled. Now, you've all probably heard of Milgram's experiments, wherein he took people, actors, who pretended they were being shocked and invited supposed test subjects to do the shocking and were told by an authority figure that, you know, the, the science needed to go on. When people gave incorrect answers, as you saw in the opening scene in Ghostbusters, they received varying degrees of shock, supposedly. It was all acting. The lesson the world took away from this was that with an authority figure present, People would do things they would not normally do and would shock people even though they had misgivings about it. Well, apparently that's just not so. When he wrote up his book on the subject, Milgram's uh, Obedience to Authority, he finally he let loose somewhere in the middle of it that, uh, well, 56% of his volunteers fully believed that the shocks were causing the learner pain. 
which notes the author of the piece, that alone should have been enough to undermine his sweeping conclusions about human nature. But it's worse than that. Milgram's earlier unpublished analysis had found that in most experimental variations, the people who were most likely to disobey were those who said they believed someone was genuinely being hurt. On the flip side, the 44% of people who doubted the shocks were real were the ones most likely to pump up the voltage. The house of cards he built had no foundation, even if it still stands out in our collective cultural memory. It should be noted that Milgram's funders, the National Science Foundation, had similar doubts about all this back in 1962. They refused Milgram's funding request for more experiments and instead gave him money to do a follow-up survey gathering evidence of volunteers' interpretation of what happened in the lab. They apparently did do some follow-up research, and the archives of that is littered with volunteers' descriptions of their suspicions of how they found it hard to believe that a learner who in one case warned of a heart condition, would agree to be shocked anyway. Milgram's experiment for many of its, his volunteers were just too bizarre to be credible. Now, Milgram was apparently inspired to, to do this research by the arrest and trial back in 1961 of Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was a high-ranking officer of the Third Reich, and his trial for war, and his trial for war crimes was televised nightly across the U.S. from April to August. August in 1961. Milgram was riveted by this. He was then a 26-year-old assistant professor at Yale University with childhood memories of the war, such as gathering around the radio with his family in their Brooklyn apartment for news of Jewish relatives in Eastern Europe. As the trial unfolded, Eichmann insisted he was merely following orders. This gave Milgram an idea for a research project, which, you know, would become one of the most controversial experiments in the history of psychology, as we have just outlined. Now, the unfortunately all-too-real story of uh, Nazi atrocities takes us to a pair of obituaries, that of Traute Lafrenz, the last of the White Rose Resistance Circle, who died in March at the age of 103, and the passing of Benjamin Ferenz, also aged 103, who was the last surviving member of the team of prosecutors at the Nuremberg Trials after World War II. LaFrenz is much the simpler story, and although some think that the entire German nation went crazy for Hitler and the Nazis back in the 30s, it's, it's not true. There were pockets of resistance, in one case, students in 1943 who attempted some leafleting and graffiti efforts against the regime, paltry as those such efforts may have been. After a leafleting episode in a February morning in 1943, notes The Economist, the Gestapo caught up with the leafleters. When they finally arrested La Friends, they asked her about them. Did she know about them? Yes, she said. Not, not, that, not that you mentioned it, she did. Her friend Hans had shown her one. Did she understand, the Gestapo asked, if such a leaflet was subversive material? Of course she understood that. How could she not? Her friend Hans had already been executed for them, as had his sister Sophie and her friend Christoph. Her friends were being picked off one by one. Clearly, she might be next. Did she understand that Gestapo asked that they were subversive? Yes, she did, she said demurely, but it seemed harmless, really. Such nonsense. Maybe that attitude saved her. The piece notes that decades later, when streets had been renamed after the White Rose Group and films made of them and statues sculpted of them, people would start to call it an organization and call her a hero. No, 
She said, there was no organization. There was just her friend Hans, his sister Sophie, and some other friends. And they had done the leaflets. That was true. Six in all, as well as some graffiti. Hans had apparently painted Down with Hitler and Freedom all over Munich. The piece notes that later when she was living out her long life in America, she would wonder, why Hans? Why had he started all this? He'd been a much better Nazi than she at first. She'd never liked the Nazis, all that Heil Hitlering and shouting at school graded on her. But Hans had been willing to join the Hitler Youth and even been a banner carrier at a Nuremberg rally. But he was sent to the Eastern Front, and along the way, the soldiers' trains had gone through Warsaw, and they'd seen what happened to the ghetto. So it was, he led a, a small group of rebels, whose rebellion was quite limited. Lefrenz was always clear that she'd just helped get paper and envelopes. She hadn't done much, though they had to be careful. Just buying paper was dangerous. Later, the Nazis would call the leaflets the worst incident of highly treasonous propaganda of the whole war. The real story is that Sophie and Hans were seen throwing the leaflets in the atrium. The university's caretaker rushed up the stairs and caught her and her brother. Their trial began Monday morning and ended at 1 p.m. At 5 p.m., Sophie was led to the guillotine, then Hans. For her part, Lafrenz didn't escape. She would go to prison for a year, but she never complained. What right did she have to? The leaflets didn't die with her. Somehow a copy of that one from the atrium found its way out, was taken to Norway, then to Sweden, then to England, and was copied as it went. In July of that year, the RAF flew copies of it into Germany and dropped them. And no, I don't know how much they might have influenced German popular opinion, and I'm not sure that anybody does. But we definitely applaud the efforts of these individuals to st stood up to Hitler. And then there's Ben Ferenz. He was a 27-year-old lawyer with zero trial experience when he prosecuted the biggest murder case in history. He was five foot two. He was a Jewish immigrant. He was investigating Nazi war crimes for the United States Army when one of his researchers learned about the units called the Einsatzgruppen, which had executed two million Jews across Eastern Europe during World War II. He gathered evidence meticulously and became the youngest prosecutor at the U.S. military tribunals in Nuremberg, where Hitler's henchmen were being held responsible for such atrocities. At one trial, he prosecuted 24 Einsatzgruppen authorities, 22 were found guilty, and 14 sentenced to death. The evidence was overwhelming. The units had shot 25,000 Jews in two days in Latvia and had slaughtered more than 33,000 in Ukraine at Babi Yar. Said Ferenz, vengeance is not our goal. We ask this court to affirm by international penal action man's right to live in peace and dignity. His obituary in The Guardian notes that at Nuremberg, Ferenz prosecuted the Einsatzgruppen without calling a single witness. The Nazi paperwork was damning enough on its own. He also secured convictions of German industrialists who, who exploited Jewish slave labor to power their war effort. After several decades in private practice, he devoted himself to campaigning for global justice and the establishment of the International Criminal Court. At that court's first trial against a Congolese warlord in 2011, Ferenz, then 92, gave closing arguments. It's noted that in the end, he was troubled that the U.S. and other major nations failed to recognize the ICC. We talked about this in the program back in the day when George Bush was saying he wasn't going to let anybody in the U.S. be subject to prosecution by this international criminal court. And yes, Mr. Milan, I'm sure that has something to do with the fact that he had no intention of ever appearing in front of it. And we want to cite The Intercept for its noting 
that among the obituaries for Ben Ferenz, everyone seemed to have omitted one key factoid. It was Ferenz's belief that top members of the George W. Bush administration, including Bush himself, should have been tried for war crimes for the Iraq War. Sadly, that fact does not appear in his obituaries. It's missing from all of them. All major outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the BBC, The Guardian, Reuters, and the Associated Press. In fact, Ferenz wrote the foreword to a 2009 book titled George W. Bush, War Criminal? The Bush administration's liability for 269 war crimes. He also wrote the foreword for another book, Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq. We want to give Ben Ferenz all the credit in the world for his efforts in this regard, although they didn't go anywhere. Mr. Millen did point out to me that it's a shame we never did reach out to Ben Ferenz to come on this program, and I agree. It is a shame. We should have. He made prominent appearances in documentaries about his life as recently as, I think, a couple years ago. He was still spry and active till near the end. If you have not uh, seen uh, any of these documentaries, we recommend you're listening. You check them out. And the spelling of his name will help as you're, as you're doing the search. It's F-E-R-E-N-C-Z, Benjamin Ferenz. But I think we should probably at this point give ourselves some small pat on the back for being on the right side of this. When former Los Angeles District Attorney Vincent Bugliosi wrote a book with the in-your-face title of The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder. We actually, I think, did more than one uh, chat on this program about that topic. We talked to Bugliosi about it, and we talked to Charlotte Denon, who was proposing that she go forward and uh, find a jurisdiction from which she could prosecute. I don't remember the details on it, but I know it didn't really gain much traction, unfortunately. Those efforts are available on our website, radioparallax.com. If you didn't hear them back in the day, we suggest uh, that you do so now. Unfortunately, it's still resonating. Bugliosi did point out that there is no statute of limitations on murder, so if someone actually developed any uh, any cojones, uh, they might go ahead and uh, do some prosecution. But we're living in an era where Donald J. Trump so far is escaping, uh, being cited for sedition, treason, and he's apparently already gotten off scot-free from obstruction of justice. My bet to Mr. McMillan that Trump would not be prosecuted before the end of last month. We have a double or nothing going for the end of this month, and it's looking pretty good for me, sad to say. I've only got a couple minutes left, but I think I'll quote from the beginning of Bugliosi's uh, Barn Burner intro. The book you're about to read deals with what I believe the most serious crime ever committed in American history. The president of this nation, George W. Bush, knowingly and deliberately taking this country to war in Iraq under false pretenses, a war that condemned over 100,000 human beings, including 4,000 young American soldiers, to horrible, violent deaths. That, of course, is the most serious consequence of Bush's monumentally criminal behavior. But let's not forget that, additionally, thousands upon thousands of people have suffered injuries that have disabled them for life. Hundreds of thousands of humans have sustained psychic damage from the war, and literally hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people will un- involuntarily recreate in their mind's eye over and over again what happened to their loved ones. And also, if you don't get around to checking out our talk with Bugliosi, you might want to consider the June 13, 2008 episode of Democracy Now!, where Amy Goodman covered the same topic quite nicely. 
Anyway, speaking of Iraq, I want to close with a little blurb from The Intercept from last month. I can't resist quoting from this piece by John Swartz, which notes that for the 20th anniversary of the start of the Iraq War, the New York Times published an article by Max Fisher headlined, and not making this up, 20 years on, a question lingers about Iraq. Why did the U.S. invade? Peace notes that when it was first published, it was this article was undermined by an extremely significant and extremely funny mistake. After inquiries from The Intercept, the paper has changed the original mistake into a fresh new mistake. The article originally read, Mr. Hussein had ejected international weapons inspectors, which was seen in Washington as a humiliating policy failure for Mr. Clinton. Schwartz notes, this is funny because in 1998, the Times accurately reported what really happened. The UN inspection team, called UNSCOM, was not expelled by Saddam, but rather was withdrawn by Richard Butler, the head of UNSCOM, after he consulted with the U.S. about the fact that the U.S. was about to start bombing Iraq in a campaign called Operation Desert Fox. Apparently the paper had had claimed this erroneously back in 1998 and again in 1999 and issued corrections about it at least three times. Noted Schwartz, two decades later, the paper apparently wanted to recapture its youth by being wrong again and has now issued its fourth correction on this subject. And the truth here in all of this is that Iraq did apparently expel American members of a UN inspection team in 1997, but all the rest of the team remained in Iraq until they were withdrawn by the United Nations. Mr. Milner has just informed me that Hans Blix, the former UN uh, weapons inspector, has a new book out where he confirms that they were not allowed to finish their job because George Bush wanted them out because they wanted a war. We should probably get that book. Maybe we should even get Hans Blix. Who knows? The piece does conclude by noting that the New York Times coverage of Iraq and its purported weapons of mass destruction was so atrocious in the lead-up to the war in 2003 that the paper eventually had to issue an extensive mea culpa. So you'd like to believe that it now would concentrate on getting it right at long last. However, that's clearly a vain dream. And alas, our dream that we have all the time we would need to make all of our points uh, is also apparently going to fall short because we are again out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, whose stated policy has always been to be freely available for any weapons inspections. This has been Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Well, uh, we'll see you soon.